This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. It's a beautiful morning. Good morning out there in Radio Land. Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett or dial two MPB Think Radio's Deep South Dining. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Malcolm. It is so good to see you this morning, even though it's on a screen and you're sitting in your basement. Yeah, it's 2020. Nothing is supposed to be normal, and this certainly is not. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going? Did you have a good weekend and a good week? Yeah, I had a great weekend. Um, Yeah, the weather was cold, but it was beautiful and a nice mix of rain for napping and cooking. So I was pretty happy. How about you? Yeah, I was uh, busy. I um, I traveled down to Bay St. Louis to take care of some real estate business. And while I was down there, I uh, ate uh, some really good food. I kind of made the rounds. Uh, I had uh, a good meal at the Bodego um with where chef Ricky Peters, uh, is now in, uh, in session. He, he makes a great local gumbo with uh, chicken and andouille sausages and makes a fine shrimp romalade. Now, Ricky Peters used to have, he was the chef at the Bay city grill. He had a place oh, called, yeah. Rick, he had a place called Ricky's, uh, in Bay St. Louis that Katrina destroyed. Then he moved over to no, I mean Waveland. Then he moved over to Bay St. Louis and reopened Ricky's, but now is the chef at the Bodego, and uh, still cooking all those great Gulf Coast specialties. I also had a nice lunch at the Buttercup down the street from my house, and had a great breakfast at the Mockingbird Cafe of good, good local coffee and muffins. What about yourself? Well, you were. You were on a coastal tour, and I'm so happy to hear that Bay St. Louis is really thriving with their food community. It was a tough go there for a while after Hurricane Katrina, and, you know, we wondered if if places were going to be able to come back, kind of like what we're wondering now. Right, right. But uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time cooking this weekend. You know, with the cold weather, I always like to make a beef bourguignon which is a, hmm. a you know classic french bistro and country dish and i did that most of of saturday takes a while yeah um, but now it, that's a cousin to uh beef stew that we know in this part of the world right yes it is it's the french version of beef stew or either beef stew is our version of that but uh you know, the, the, what sets beef bourguignon apart is the wine. Uh-huh. It used a really strong or full-bodied red wine, something that, you know, comes from that region or the, the taste comes from that region, like a burgundy or, you know, something from here with the Pinot Noir grape mm. or a good Rhone wine. But it adds a very unique flavor and, you know, has to be cooked for a very long time as opposed to beef stew because you have to break down that alcohol to really get the flavor. So it, it has to cook for several hours. Oh. And, you know, beef stew uses more 
water or or beef broth. So that's the main difference. And um, one of the fun things I did this weekend was watch an old Julia Child French chef video. I would highly recommend that to anybody. You can go on YouTube. And beef bourguignon was the first recipe that she made on her cooking show. And it's oh. in black and white. It was 1963, brought to us by S&H Green Stamps. And it is just delightful. But, you know, her name is most associated with that dish. Is she really introduced it to the U.S. And when people think of beef bourguignon, often they are thinking of Julia Child. Wow. That's good. So you got to see this early episode did did you see the episode where she made the beef bourguignon? Yeah, or? it's her oh, okay. first it's her first first class and I did it, you know, way after I had already cooked it, but I was thinking about her and thinking about the difference in the recipe I I made because it was, mm. you know, a little modern version where you actually cook the dish in the oven instead of simmering it on the stove, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but a lot of times you put things on a low simmer and then you come back five minutes later and it's, you know, (laughs) boiling over. Yeah. You got to keep a close eye, particularly if you leave the lid on, if you take the lid off, you got a little better chance of of blanking out or going down a rabbit hole and then coming back. And And so this recipe with Anna Garden, the barefoot Contessa, you actually put it in the oven at 250 degrees. Uh-huh. And that's a technique that's been being used for a lot of stews now. So anyway, it was fun. Yeah. John was a very happy guy. I was. served it over mashed potatoes, and there you go. I saw a photo of it on cooking and coping. It looked very beautiful. Uh, looked like a, a nice little spread that you had put out there for yourself and John with uh, with the classic French recipe. Uh, on my way down to the coast, I stopped to eat lunch uh, at Crescent City Grill, and I went out on the courtyard, which was open and uh, really decorative. He had a, Robert St. John, of course, owns that establishment. He had it set up for, for Christmas, and it was very beautiful. Uh, and I had a good uh, crab cake uh, BLT lunch. Oh, uh, man. Which, really quite good. It also had a fried green tomato on it, so it was a crab cake. Bacon, lettuce, tomato, and, and the tomato was a fried green tomato. With oh, some, what kind of bread did he use? It was a looked like a homemade bun. Uh, I think he probably has it made there in Hattiesburg. Really tasty bun. And then he had some really great uh, romalade sauce. Uh, and before the, the sandwich, we ate some crab claws, which is, again, very Gulf Coast traditional fried crab claws. They were delicious. Uh, but while I was there, I kind of went inside and looked around. I know Robert's been, uh, renovating and changing, uh, his facility up there. He, he now has a private dining room called the parrot room, which is what's left of the old purple parrot, his fine dining, white tablecloth restaurant, beautiful, beautiful, uh, room. He set up, uh, back in the back between the kitchen, uh, and, and the Crescent city grill. And he's got all the Wyatt waters paintings in there, which used to adorn, the walls of the purple parrot and he's also almost finished uh, renovating the purple parrot into his new mexican concept called el rayo 
So I went into that room and looked around and uh, he had a few people in there testing his recipes. So he's got a lot going on here in the COVID 2020 uh, at the Purple Parrot, what's left of the Purple Parrot, El Rayo and the Crescent City Grill. You know, Robert has been very active and taken a big leadership role in trying to get a restaurant recovery bill through Congress. And he's also spending a lot of time. I don't know when the guy sleeps besides (laughs) running restaurants, you know, his charity extra table that feeds people and and, uh, lobbying Congress. He's a busy guy. Well, speaking of lobbying Congress, I don't know if you saw Jeff Good's piece in the New York Times where he sort of recanted his experiences uh, with COVID-19 uh, between Sal and Mookie's and Bravo uh, and the Broad Street Bakery. Did you did you see the piece? I did not. Okay, do, it, do it's on social help. media. Uh, it, he actually it was published uh, in New York Times. It was sort of a opinion piece about what small businesses, particularly restaurants, are going through and the need uh, for a new stimulus package and how helpful the original. CARES Act was for small businesses and how critical uh, getting another stimulus package is for for small businesses to stay open and to survive. And, you know, our our Senator Roger Wicker has been extremely involved in that and has taken a leadership role in Congress. So um, Mississippi is well represented. Well, that's good to know. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about sweet potatoes here a little later on in the show. Uh, you like a sweet potato, I understand. I love a sweet potato. How about you? I, you know, I love them very much, and I love the person who's going to join us on the phone later on, April McGregor, who is a former uh, native of Mississippi from Vardaman, Mississippi. What is Vardaman, Carol? It's the sweet potato capital of the world, Malcolm. That's right. And even Jill St. John, Jill St. John, Jill, Jill Connor Brown, that's Robert's wife, Jill St. John. Uh, but Jill Connor Brown, the sweet potato queen, uh, has has um, embraced Vardaman uh, as the capital. And she she often touts Mississippi as the capital of the sweet potato. So we'll take a break. Uh, and as advertised, when we return, we will welcome April McGregor to our show a strong contributor to our Facebook page, Cooking and Coping. This chef, author, and Vardaman native will tell us what's been happening in her kitchen up in Pennsylvania. She will share her favorite sweet potato dishes with us and talk about her Christmas Day menu. So stay tuned. Oh, that's uh, James Taylor there singing to us about sweet potato pie. Java, our producer, is also the DJ uh, of choice, and he always comes up with fabulous music for our radio show. And you are listening to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett. Our show is the show all about the culture of southern flavor, whether we're talking sweet potatoes or oysters or gumbo or red beans and rice or whatever we might be talking about. So I'm going to let Carol introduce her special guest today, but before I hand it off to Carol, I'm going to tell my quick little sweet potato story. 
And I discovered many years ago that if you put a couple of sweet potatoes in the oven and turn them on, it can change the entire atmosphere of your home and your psyche. So I learned this, of course, at Christmas and Thanksgiving when my grandparents would bake sweet potatoes and it would give me this soothing, calm, very family-esque feeling that it was the holidays and all was well uh, in our home. And I use it to this day. If I'm having kind of a stressed out, weird, funky day, I'll just go grab a couple of sweet potatoes, throw them in the oven and turn them on. And my atmosphere and the atmosphere of my home changes dramatically. And with that, Carol, would you introduce our guest? Well, I'll just say, Malcolm, that they heard it here on Deep South Dining to put the aroma of sweet potatoes in your home for calm. That's right. And, and no, no I would say you incense, you know, some people go for incense, but you can't yeah. eat the incense. But yeah. <laughs> with the sweet potatoes, you get the aroma and you get the, to eat the potatoes later. Well, uh, our guest, April McGregor, uh, is a is a very favorite guest on this show, and she has a, an unusual pedigree. Ron Bartum in Mississippi went to Millsaps. Is that right, April? That's right. Yes. And actually worked for Malcolm at Helen Mouse. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in, uh, going to Chapel Hill, you became a volcanologist. Is that how you say a person who studies volcanoes? A volcanologist. Volcanologist. Hey, you know there's a volcano site in Bellhaven. Did you know that, April? No. I mean, I know there's a, um, yeah, I've heard in in Mississippi there is a, and I've never seen it, but um, a, little, a meteor site. So I wonder if it's the same thing um, or if that's a completely different thing. But I haven't seen that. I'll check it out. There's a historical marker that was recently p- placed uh, in the little park in Bellhaven, and it talks about volcano activity. But anyway, sorry, well, Carol. Um, April, briefly take us from volcanoes to cooking. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in my mind, you know, and as I, at this stage of my life, I'm really kind of knitting those two things back together. In the when I switched from volcanoes and geology to cooking, I thought I was really switching gears, but in reality, I'm really interested in, in these days, what people call deep history. And that's really deep history of all sorts of things. And with food, I'm very interested in, you know, the, uh, the history of food, our connection to the earth and the ecology and you know um, the relationships that people have to um, to their food and their communities and all those types of things. And to me, there um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things in common between you know geology and and food and food history and all those types of things. So, but for me, I when I was working in when I was um, in graduate school in Chapel Hill. Um, I was in my last semester writing my thesis and I needed to get a part-time job and really all of the work that I had done up until going to geology graduate school had been in kitchens or in restaurants and um, that had always been a very strong interest of mine. So it was just a natural thing to, um, and I really missed it when I'd been really busy in grad school and sitting at a desk all day. So I decided I wanted to get busy back in the kitchen. And the first day I felt like I was coming home after, you know, not being in a kitchen for a while. So I've kind of stayed there ever since. 
Well, I know that one of your credentials is that you actually cooked at a gas station. Yes. Yes. In high school, I um, worked at a little um, gas station in Derma, Mississippi, and um, we fried chicken and made biscuits and all types of biscuit sandwiches. So the very classic Mississippi gas station eateries are um, a part of my pedigree for sure. <laughs> yeah. Malcolm, you need to tell April about Stafford, our yeah, correspondent. Stafford Sheridan uh, is one of our regular guests and contributors to Cooking and Coping. And he, his little side hobby, he owns a restaurant, but his little side, he's also a farmer. And a his judge. little side yeah. hustle is that he goes around and uh, eats gas station food and uh, grades them. Do you know, do you know of him? I, I don't know him. Does he have, is it through a website or how does he do it? How does he yeah, get Yeah, he does have a website and kind of a, um, a blog, but he okay. comes on the show every now and then and shares with us, you know, what he thinks about this shell station or this Gulf station right. or, you know, and, yeah. he, and, and he rates their food. So anyway, uh, so, so it's become, I guess, uh, more of a, an art and a science now since you were, you were doing it for part-time jobs. Yeah. I didn't know. It's I'm yeah, sorry, Carol. He, he does know the tailgate of his car, and he has like a hundred thousand followers from around the world. So we'll we'll, you know, put you and Sheridan, uh, Stafford awesome. together. Yeah, okay. I have, the, in Calhoun City, um, the the gas station I worked at is no longer around, but in Calhoun City, Buck's One Stop um, is a famous gas station. They have really amazing caramel cakes and all types of cakes and desserts and as well as the usual chicken on a stick and sausage biscuits and that type of thing so they're mm -hmm. one of my favorites <laughs> well you you've been posting on cooking and coping our facebook site since the first and you've become kind of the go-to fixer <laughs> for people anybody that has a question or fails at something they type in and highlight april mcgregor and you've been so generous with your time but um just kind of tell us about your experience with the site um well i i have really enjoyed um getting to know a lot of people who i didn't have any relationship with before through cooking and coping and for me especially now that i'm living in philadelphia pennsylvania i really appreciate having other um, Southern cooks and in particular Mississippi cooks because we share a lot of the same um, favorite dishes but then we you know are different enough that we can still learn from each other and things like that so some of the things that I see um, like Tim's uh, dressing recipe and stuff like that it feels you know I'm up here in in Philadelphia and everyone's like what is what what's wrong with your stuffing you know what what kind of bread is this this is you know uh, and, and and then I see Tim's recipe and it's almost identical to you know exactly how my grandmother would have done it um, or does it and you know I think finally I've found my people you know people they understand me <laughs> so true so true there were a lot of sweet potato recipes uh, yeah. going around and I was so interested when you talked about Sweet potato pones. Do, mm -hmm. do, do tell us what a sweet potato pone is. So I think of sweet potato pone as being a very old-fashioned um, sweet potato dish. 
Uh, it is grated sweet potatoes that are really cooked in a custard. Um, one of my favorite recipes for sweet potato pone and one that I um, included in my cookbook um, comes from um, the Mobile native. Uh, oh, wait, I'm completely blanking on his name. It's going to come to me in a second. Eugene Walter. Eugene Walter. I'm like, why? I know I'm going to pull it up here in a second. Okay, yes, Eugene Walter. And one of the things that he says is that that you would often see um, in old Creole recipes for sweet potato pone, a lot of black pepper. And then another thing that people used to add to um, to pones, and one, one of the things that he adds is like an orange flower water. So mm. both of those things I think are really unusual. You never see those in um, sweet potato recipes. So I included that in the cookbook. Um, and it really is just a, a sweet potato pudding that's made with... Um, with grated sweet potatoes. But when it cooks together, the grated sweet potatoes kind of blend with the pudding. And it's not unsimilar to like sweet potato pie or something like that, but it's a little less sweet and, you know, and it would have been served not a, des a dessert, but similarly to sweet potato casserole where it would have been served along with um, savory things. Well, you, go ahead, I just Malcolm. want to say one thing. You mentioned that orange flower water, and yes. I haven't heard that mentioned since I lived and worked in New Orleans in the mid seventies. We used to make these milk punch <laughs> brunch drinks out of that orange flower water. Yeah. And that's the only application that I've ever known it to be used for. But what an interest. Can you talk a little bit about where you find orange flower water and other things to use it with? Um, I find it, um, at um like a middle eastern type markets like we in chapel hill i would always shop at the mediterranean deli um and they they always had orange flower water rose flower water things like that i mean these days you can certainly find it you know online um in a bunch of different spots but i used it a lot in pastry recipes and it goes so well with custards it doesn't taste like orange and it's not nearly as kind of um strong is something like rose flower water you know it's a little gentler so if you're mm. afraid of the potpourri uh, nature of some, of like roses orange flower water it's you know it's romantic and intriguing without kind of hitting you over the head with its floral essence so it's a little it, it's um you know it, it reminds me of a of you know the spring um like orchards flowering that type right. of thing it has a sweet slightly fruity smell but it's not strong in the flower um kind of department the way that roses are now i love rose flower water too but orange flower water i think is more user friendly than rose <laughs> great well we have a caller on the phone bill from greenwood one of our regular listeners and contributors hey bill what's going on man oh not too much uh, uh there used to be a product made by like 20 years ago it was called mckenzie's uh uh, sweet potato casserole. It wasn't out too long, but it was really good. It had pecans. It was real creamy and uh, not real heavy on cinnamon or nutmeg, but it was just really good. A lot of pecans and raisins in there, and I was just wondering how you go about trying to make something like that. Do you just do you use cream or milk or uh, what, what? What would you go about doing? With no pineapple in it. Just <laughs> that pecans. And some raisins. Um, it's interesting that you say um, that there were raisins in there because my um, 
my grandparents lived in Batesville, Mississippi. My grandmother always put raisins in her sweet potato casserole, and I have never seen that outside of um, at, at her table. Now, other people, not saying that no one does it, but it's not nearly as common as what I thought it was when I was growing up. Um, one of the way, just a really easy way for to make sweet potato casserole is if you go ahead, like Malcolm was talking about, and roast your sweet potatoes to begin with. They're going to be naturally really sweet. Um, so get those nice and soft. Then you just mash them with butter, a little salt, put a few eggs in there, a little bit of sugar or honey or something to sweeten them up just a little bit. You don't need much. And then you're, um, then you're going to put them in a buttered casserole. Your topping is going to be a mixture of chopped pecans, brown sugar, butter, and a little flour just to kind of hold it together and get it all nice and crumbly. And then you just crumble that on the top of your dish. If you want to add vanilla or cinnamon or something like that, they're nice additions. But like you said, a lot of times um, sweet potatoes are not as heavily spiced historically as things like pumpkin pie would have been. And certainly the sweet potato pies that I grew up eating did not have a heavy hand with the spices. A little lemon sometimes to give it some punch. Oh, April, while we're at it, talk talk to us about the Bartman sweet potato and what makes it different. I know your dad was a farmer, sweet potato farmer, right? Yes, um, my dad um, uh, was a sweet potato farmer, and now my brother is the primary um, farmer in the family. He raises sweet potatoes still in Vardaman, Mississippi, and there is something special about Vardaman sweet potatoes. To me, they just have the—they're um, just the smoothest um, textured and the sweetest sweet potatoes that I have um, reliably found on the market. Um, and, um, yeah, my brother now, uh, just this past year for the first time has his own, uh, sweet potato packing business called County Line Packing. Um, and that is actually located on the Calhoun Chickasaw County border there in Mississippi. Uh, but yeah, he grows, they, they, he primarily grows Beauregards, which is a great reliable variety, um, with a nice, um, sweet and, uh, silky texture. And it's one of my favorites. Well, I know before before Thanksgiving, we saw an article in the New York Times that interviewed you. And uh, why don't you tell us about your challenges of getting Bartman sweet potatoes to Pennsylvania? <laughs> yes. So the only way so far that I, I mean, ran, every now and then I will see them somewhere like Costco. Well, they will actually say Bartman sweet potatoes. But generally, um, I feel like, just due to uh, proximity, it feels like that North Carolina sweet potatoes are much more prevalent in markets here um, than Mississippi sweet potatoes are. Um, but I do prefer the Mississippi sweet potatoes, and I like to just get a 40-pound box of them when I go down to Mississippi. Uh, if I that That's like all the motivation I need to drive down. Um, and like I said, I always like to get the sweet potatoes um, unwashed because if you get 40 pounds of sweet potatoes washed, they're going to go bad before you get them all eaten. But if you buy them unwashed, they actually keep really well as long as you keep them cool, but not cold. And they'll keep for many months that way and wash them as you need them. Cause the, the water exposure to water makes the 
them get little soft spots on them and then they um, go bad. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will continue our fascinating conversation with April McGregor about sweet potatoes and other southern delicacies. Well, actually, the sweet potato came to us from Polynesia by way of Central and South America. I, I was figuring that it was an African-American thing, but we'll let April talk about its roots. Ha <laughs> ha, get it? When we come back from break. Meanwhile, Java reminded me that when he was growing up, his grandmother put raisins in the sweet potato casserole also. So you're listening to, to Deep South Dining, and Carol and April and I and Java will all be back in a few minutes. If you want to give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. one 672 Or we'll take your emails at food at mpbonline.com. O-R-G. We'll all be right back and talk more about music roots, sweet potatoes. contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome back to Deep South Dining. And Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. And Merry Christmas to everyone. And happy holidays as we approach the second of these large, or actually uh, these large gatherings and holidays that we celebrate. There are many. There's often this concept and conversation about Christmas gifts. And so we thought before we delve back deeply into sweet potatoes, we might each share a little bit of, about what we think of our favorite a kitchen tool for this Christmas uh, gift-giving opportunity. Mine is an immersion blender. Now, I know it's not new on the market, but I'll tell you, ours gets a workout here. Uh, we make lots of soups, and we love to blend them and to smooth them out. So I, for me, I'm going with immersion blender as my favorite uh, tool for the kitchen this year. What about you, April? Um, well, I... One, my favorite tool, which is very simple, and, and you would need to probably combine it with a few other things to make much of a Christmas gift out of it, but that would be a bench scraper, the little flat tool that you use to scrape your dough, cookie dough, or pie dough off of your countertop or your pastry bench, you know, if, if you have especially a marble or a wooden um, um, countertop that you can work on. Um, I, that's very indispensable for me this year. Um, and it, and it really makes cleaning up, um, a breeze as well as, um, just moving your dough around on your board. Um, and this year, the other thing that I'm actually, that's on my Christmas list is I'm finally going to master sharpening my own knives. So I have a whetstone on my Christmas list and, uh, you know, I'm taking this pandemic as a chance to learn a few new skills as well as, um, you know, uh, working on a few new hobbies. So I'm going to 
be my own knife sharpener. We talked about that last week, didn't we, Carol? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Well, you know, I want to expound on what April said about a bench scraper. I use mine also almost, yeah, several times a week for like chopped onions, chopped celery. When you cut all these things on your cutting board, you can take the bench scraper and you know, scoop them up and put them in a pan. And mm-hmm. it just makes everything easier and more more efficient. So I think that's a, a lot of our listeners could benefit from that. Mm-hmm. What I'm asking for for Christmas is something I learned about from Java last week on his list. And it's a tablet cookbook holder. Yeah, I, I use my iPad or my iPhone for lots of looking up recipes. And it's just a little stand that holds your iPad or tablet in the kitchen. And I'm very excited about that. Then I'm also asking for two books. One is Ina Garten's new book, Modern Comfort Food. You know, her recipes are always tasty and just so well written and and easy to follow for cooks like me and the other one is Vivian Howard's new book called This Will Make It Taste Good and she's going to be on our show uh, show next week so I can't wait to hear about that book yeah and last week we had Katie Bompas from Lemuria come on and talk about the great wall of cookbooks at Lemuria so if you're uh, if, if, if your gift giving includes uh, cookbooks or books about food, uh, we would hope that you would support your local uh, independent bookstore uh, in purchasing that. So, you know, April, I was just thinking about when you were talking about the sweet potatoes. Um, what about the skins? You know, I love the skins, but you rarely ever see them appear in a finished dish. What, what's your take on what to do with your sweet potato skins? Well, I have a, I also, I agree with you, Malcolm, love sweet potato skins. And too often we do just cast those aside. But I have a um, recipe in my cookbook actually for sweet potato skins that you would eat like potato skins. Where um, if you're, let's say you're making sweet potato casserole, if you just kind of cut the sweet potato skins off so that you leave a thick enough layer that you can then lay out on your um, baking pan, drizzle with olive oil, salt and pepper, you can bake those and they'll get a little crispy. And then you can top them, you can top them just like you would top your potato skins. But one of the ways that I really enjoy them is to take them in a... um, sort of Mexican direction. And I top them with um, a little salsa and black beans and cheese and a little chipotle cream where you just take a little bit of the chipotles in adobo sauce, mix with sour cream and drizzle that over the top. Mm. That's one of my favorite ways to eat them. And and, um, they're really delicious and super healthy. So I highly recommend that. And a good idea for not wasting. (laughs) Well, I want to know what some of the weirdest sweet potato recipes that you've run across when you were researching your book a few years ago or that you tasted at the Bartum and Sweet Potato Festival? I I think the weirdest uh, recipes, now also delicious, but 
the um, drive to make everything out of sweet potatoes that happens at the sweet potato festival, there's a little bit of a novelty factor where we just try to put sweet potatoes in everything. So there's, um, you know, and they, and they're not bad, but a uh, sweet potato punch was, is pretty funny to, <laughs> and you know, now though, I say that, 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 that used to kind of blow my mind, this sweet potato punch, but now people are juicing sweet potatoes and making caramel sauce out of it by cooking it down. So, you know, I, maybe they were onto something early and I just didn't realize it at the time. Um, that was a weird one. I, honestly, my my brain barely works that way. I now think sweet potatoes can do almost everything, but I rarely see anything that surprises me. It has such a versatility in terms of, you know, it's great for... Well, one of the things that I learned um, is that... Um, is that um, Carver actually had a... Um, uh, a booklet that talked about how you could make sweet potato flour and it was used during wartime when there was a flour shortage. Um, so George Washington Carver, you know, um, in, um, he didn't invent sweet potato flour. It actually has a long use in um, other countries. Asia in particular uses, makes a ton of things out of like noodles and everything else out of sweet potato flour. But, um, but that, that I always thought I thought was a really um, cool idea. And we all know that sweet potatoes make excellent biscuits. So that makes a lot of sense to me that sweet potato flour would be used as a, in place of wheat flour for making bread. And reading the New York times article you were featured in, it was really great to be reminded of George Washington Carver's contribution to the eating and growing of sweet potatoes in America. That was back in the in the early twenties, and yeah, you know, one of the things he said about cooking that's just simple. And yeah, I, I think about it when how long do you cook a sweet potato? Uh, George Washington Carver said, "Time is an essential element." should be kept in the oven for an hour and he is an expert yes <laughs> he he is absolutely right there um the sweet potato requires time to convert those starches into sugars so the slower and lower that you cook it the microwave is very convenient but it's not going to give you that that depth of flavor and that characteristic sweetness that sweet potatoes have when you just cook them slow and you get that like Malcolm was talking about those aromas of the of this of the sugars caramelizing on your baking sheet that's what you want when you roast a sweet potato and what sure. do you consider low so um I one of the things that I, I believe George Washington Carver said this and I say it as well in my book but I actually put the tray of sweet potatoes in the oven with it cold, like you would an old pound cake recipe, and turn the oven on to about 325. At the highest, I would do 350, and I roast them for like an hour and a half usually. It really depends on the moisture content and the size of your sweet potatoes, but I've had them take two hours easily, especially early in the season when they are um, younger and have more higher starch content at that point. Do you prick your sweet potatoes? I do. I how do. Many, how, how prickly do you get them? <laughs> um, you know, uh, 
I just make sure that I have a couple pricks on each side. You know, people, some people do it with a fork. You can do it with a little steak knife with a sharp or a paring knife with a little sharp end on it. I just make sure I have a, at least a couple pricks on each side. You heard it first right here on Deep South Dining. Do not forget to prick your sweet potato before you put it in the oven to bake. And and April's recommendation is about 3 to 350. Put the potatoes in cold. Yes. Put your oven on 3, 350, and cook them for an hour to an hour and a half. And, you uh, want to line have... your baking sheet with a parchment or foil because it will ooze caramel. <laughs> yeah, there'll it be caramel ooze. all over your exactly. oven. And then you'll smell it every time you turn exactly. on your oven to cook yes, anything. Yes, not on the rack. That's not a really <laughs> great idea for sweet potatoes. <laughs> now, here's here's another recipe. It just occurred to me that my grandmother used to cook, April, and I want to see if you do this she would cook lots of sweet potatoes at a time like you mentioned put a whole rack in there so there were always extras leftovers and so she would take those skin on take the ends off with a knife and then slice them uh, in ovals leaving the skin on put them in the skillet in butter Mm -hmm. and brown them on each side and they would take on almost an entirely different flavor than the baked sweet potato that is literally one of my very favorite ways to eat sweet potatoes. What, like we're talking about how sweet potatoes benefit from long cooking. One of the best things that you can do for sweet potatoes and the best ones I've ever had are sweet potatoes that have been cooked twice. So, you know, if we think like even like sweet potato casserole, right? We roast the sweet potatoes, we mash them, we cook them again. There is the long cooking really benefits sweet potatoes. But like you said, I always roast a pan full because I know they have so many uses afterwards. And I do them exactly like you said. I will eat them that way for breakfast with fried eggs or, you know, whatever, along right on the same skillet. Well, we, you can eat them as dessert that way. You see some people would do that and then, you know, uh, sprinkle a little sugar or powdered sugar on them afterwards if you want or drizzle a little honey on them. Or, you know, you can eat them as a snack anytime. So double twice cooking sweet potatoes no matter what um no matter how you do it you could put them back in the oven and do them that way but that little um skillet frying them is really quick and easy and a great way to use um sweet potatoes that you have in the refrigerator although i will say you know it's a very common snack um still to this day in in like Korea and a lot of Asia where they will snack on cold sweet potatoes as, you know, just the way that we eat bananas, I would say now, you know, just, and you would take a, and you, you hear all these stories of people taking a sweet potato in their pocket to the field Ah, or to school or whatever. And I always say sweet potatoes were the, were the original banana in this country. You know, that's what you took as your convenience food. Well, I was about to say, I'm going to tell you how country I am. When I was a kid, when we would go hunting or fishing, we would put a sweet potato in our pocket and that was our meal. Right. And that would be a warm sweet potato. Then it would, then it would double as a little hand warmer in your pocket for, you know, until it, until it cooled off. But absolutely. I mean, that's why my grandfather says that, you know, he took a sweet potato in his bib overall pocket every day to the fields for lunch when he was young. So. That's correct. Well, I have one one more question about preparing the sweet potatoes. So after you roast them and they cool, do they freeze well? Perfectly. Perfectly. So I um I always keep some in the fridge for eating right away. 
some I'll go ahead and I know a lot of recipes that I have used two cups of mashed sweet potatoes. So I'll go ahead and mash them and put them in two cup containers so that they're ready for, you know, sweet potato pie or sweet potato casserole or, or you know, um, mashed sweet potatoes or anything else. I'll go ahead and put them away. But you can definitely put them just directly in your freezer Ziploc bag once they've cooled off and throw them in the freezer and they freeze perfectly that way as well and ready for, you know, any recipe once you've defrosted them. What a great tip. Mm. Well, April, tell us about your online cooking uh, classes. I know I, I, I dialed in for the cornbread one, but uh, talk a little bit about that aspect of your career. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, Especially during um, the, you know, I, I've done a lot of pan, uh, I've done a lot of cooking classes in my career. I enjoy, you know, um, talking to people about food and sharing any skills that I happen to have about food. But during this pandemic, um, doing these sweet potato or not sweet potato, really all kind of types of cooking class, like live videos through Facebook. I've done some YouTube videos. I've done some Instagram videos. Um, it's just been a really amazing way to um, connect with people when we're not able to travel that much or a lot of us aren't able to get together. So it's just been a nice way to, and especially now that I've been here in Philadelphia for a couple of years, it's been a really great way to bring my sort of three main or four main communities together. So I've got people in Philadelphia watching. I've got people in North Carolina where I lived for almost 20 years. And then people in Mississippi and the various towns and communities that I've lived in that are, um, that are logging in and watching, watching. So it's really fun to um, talk about different traditions and, and talk about different um, favorite recipes and ways of cooking and cooking is just a great way to bring people together. I mean, I think that's um, uh, an undeniable fact that we all eat and, you know, we all are comforted by food um, coming out of the kitchen, a loving kitchen, especially. So it's a great way to, um, to build community. And that's what I've been trying to do at a time when we're all, um, you know, dealing with things that we've never had to deal with before. We've got a caller. Alan is calling in from Mobile, Alabama. He wants to talk about a Vardaman sweet potato. Hello, Alan. How are you? Very good. How's everything going? It's sweet, Great. baby. <laughs> I understand. And that's, that's the subject today is Vardaman sweet potatoes. And I heard the comments about the potatoes and prep for cooking and uh what we do is we get the potatoes by the by the box or case full of course they're still dirty you can either wash them outside on the deck of your uh little utility trailer or either hit them with the fresh water gently but uh another thing is when you get ready to cook them uh if you will take your ice pick and just run the ice pick all the way through the potato from each end that accommodates the bending of the potato and then cook you a uh, typically use a turkey roaster and a stack of potatoes and uh, of course in the liner and then let them cook get them uh, peeled and take an 18 inch by 8 inch mixing dish you, you know in southern cooks we got a lot of big dishes like that uh of course after the potatoes have cooked and cooled peel them and put them in there you might have to use the old-fashioned potato masher initially to break them up a little bit then the uh your regular 
mix master, and that'll finish pulverizing the potatoes. And then, commonly, you can use your favorite sweet potato pie recipe with the eggs and the brown sugar and the uh, assorted flavorings, whatever, and then go back with the mix master and get your recipe down the way you want. Of course, you have to multiply this like several times for the you know big stack of potatoes that I'm talking about. And after you've done all that and taste it, you've got the consistency you want, simply take you some one-gallon Ziploc freezer bags, uh, fill the freezer bag, and don't let anything get in the zipper compartment, but seal it up and flatten it out, get all the air out, and flatten it out about like a brick. Mm-hmm. And then once you do that, uh, get your stack of them and sit them in your stand-up freezer. We commonly put a, a cookie sheet in there to get a good flat surface on there. And then you can stack several gallon bags of sweet potato pie mix in there. And you can use it for sweet potato pie. You can use it for your sweet potato casserole. All the big work is done. Then when you get mm-hmm. to the big day, all you got to do is pick that out the night before that morning. It brown your Alan, man, thank, thank you so much for that fabulous tip and for listening to our show and calling in. We got to run. Uh, that about does it for today's episode of Deep South Dining. We are a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. We are funded by generous contributions from listeners like yourself. Our show is produced by the one and only Java Chapman. For my co-host, Carol Puckett, and our special guest today, April McGregor, I'm Malcolm White. Thank you so much, April. Thank you for having me. It was always fun to talk. Stay tuned now for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey, followed by Southern Remedy at 11. Join us every Monday at 9 a.m. for Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio.